There's a singular idea that is so pervasive today that you might call it our national religion. It's a belief that's so widely held as truth that really no one seems to question it. The idea, this, this gospel of our day, is this. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. The gospel of follow your heart is proclaimed in songs, it's portrayed in movies and told in stories. It's heard in commercials and seen on billboards and is shared by well-meaning friends and parents and co-workers with others. Follow your heart, the gospel of follow your heart says that our compass showing the way to prosperity, to success, to true happiness is found inside of us, within. It's found in doing whatever you desire to do, pursuing whatever makes you feel best. We hear this gospel shared in phrases like, just be yourself or do you. Or live your truth. I think that it's so prevalent, so accepted, that we often don't even realize that it's there. It's like we're fish swimming in a tank of follow your heartness. And we don't even know that we're wet. One testimony, a popular story of how this gospel saves, is summed up in these lyrics that will be familiar to many of you. It's time to see what I can do. To test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. The character of this popular movie declares that she found freedom. She found deliverance. She found salvation when she finally let go and lived her truth. So take it or leave it. This is who she is, and she's much happier now. In fact, she says you'll never see her cry. The message is that through this self-actualization, this demonstration of who we truly are, that true happiness, that salvation is found right here. Another song from a Disney movie declares this even more clearly. It says, make your own way. Show the beauty within. When you follow your heart, there's no heart you can't win. So reach for the sky. It's not as high as it seems. Just follow your heart. Go as far as your dreams. And whether we care to acknowledge it or not, this is the dominant belief of the world around us today. Our world believes that we find meaning, we find ultimate purpose by expressing our own feelings and desires and pursuing them. If we just follow your hearts, then there can be no stopping us. Now, it's this belief that makes the sexual revolution what it is today. It's what makes relativism and tolerance seem so good and objective truth seem so hateful. It's this belief that has moved our society further and further away from what Jesus prohibits in our text today. Because in this world of following your heart, there's no reason to prohibit or speak ill of adultery. It's seen as a good thing if it's in the name of love and happiness. If following your heart is the highest ideal, then who's to say who one person shouldn't be with? Even many who say they're a Christian are susceptible to thinking this way. Isn't love what the gospel's all about? Doesn't God want us to be happy? But while our world moves rapidly in one direction, Jesus comes and pushes what's the seventh commandment in the opposite direction. Look, at we, look with me at our text for this morning. This is the word of God, inspired, inerrant, infallible, meant for our good. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Pray with me once again. Father, thank you for your word that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And may it, may it pierce us this morning as uh, we look to you. Lord, may you convict where conviction needs to be brought. May you encourage where encouragement needs to be brought. And uh, Lord, would we have eyes to see wondrous things in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In Matthew 5, Jesus is addressing what it means to live as one who belongs to his kingdom. And here he presents himself as the one who comes not to abolish God's law, but to fulfill God's law. And the text we're looking at together follows the same pattern as the text we looked at a few weeks ago, the text that came before this, where Jesus begins by repeating a command that's given in the Old Testament and then goes on to really say what's behind this command to show what God's concern is, and then he gives application for his message. Now, at the time of Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees were, were the religious experts, and they promoted a practice of religion that was all about external behavior. It's all about what obedience looked like on the outside. It was all about doing the right thing. And while God cares a great deal about doing the right thing, Jesus comes to show that even more than this, his concern is what's inside of us. And this text, uncomfortably, is really straightforward and clear. Jesus is addressing the seventh commandment, which forbids adultery. And Jesus connects this commandment not just to our actions, but to our eyes and our hearts. It's not just what we do that is God's concern, but what we see and what we think and what we desire. But lest we get the wrong idea, Jesus is not saying that these sins are equal. Whether we're talking about adultery or murder, these sins come with far greater consequences socially and personally than lust and anger. But what Jesus is showing is that godliness is not just a matter of action. It's not just a matter of what we do. It's a matter of what we think and what we feel. And he's not just addressing the, the fruit of the sin that's in our hearts. He's addressing the seed that bears that fruit. It's a matter of the heart. Jesus says that the look and thought that desires someone else is sin, just like adultery is sin. Now, the Pharisees, in order to be proved righteous, they had to reduce righteousness only to action, only to what we do. This way, righteousness was something that, that could be achieved. So, do you commit adultery? No, I don't commit adultery. But this is the broad and easy way. And it doesn't touch the whole person. And Jesus came and later sent his spirit that he might sanctify us completely, outside and in. Now, the heart is the very center of a person. It doesn't just describe our affections, but our, our thought and our will as well. And those who belong to Christ's kingdom, as we saw in Matthew 5, 8, they are those who are pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. And when God redeems, he restores completely and calls for wholehearted, pure devotion. Now, the Pharisees had completely forgotten this, and sadly, we're prone to forget this as well. Because what sin does is it takes the good gifts God has given us and it, it perverts them. It makes them our enemies. Consider for a second that when God created the heavens and the earth, he called his creation good. 
And when God created Adam and put him in the garden, he called it very good. When he created humanity, he said, this is very good. But amidst all of the goodness that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, there was one thing that was not good. And so we read in Genesis 2.18 that God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So God formed woman out of the man so that they might share life and be fruitful and multiply together. God gave them good desire for one another. And Adam, when he meets Eve, he breaks into song. And he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then in the next verse, Genesis 2.24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now here we see God establishing marriage as this tremendous good that reunites what was literally once one flesh. For the woman was taken out of the man, and marriage brings them back together. Seen in this light, the bond of marriage is the most significant human union that there is. Even more significant, what Genesis 2.24 says, even more significant than the bond between a parent and their child. That's why a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. God's good design was for marriage to be an exclusive and lifelong bond between one man and one woman as they share life together. But sin comes and perverts God's good gift. It takes what was good and God, the God-given desire that God gave us that's good and directs it elsewhere to that which is forbidden. Sin turns what is evil, what is good, into evil. But sin goes further than this because sin doesn't stop there. It ultimately destroys. And we see this in Jesus' words in, in the next verses, Matthew 25, 29, and 30, where he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And he goes on to say the same thing about our right hand. The end of sin is destruction. It's, it's hell. And if you have a problem with hell, you don't have a problem with me and what I'm saying. You have a problem with Jesus and what he says. This is where sin leads. God and sin, they're completely incompatible. Because God is holy, sin must lead to hell, and it does. And this is who we are before God. We are sinners. Paul says in Romans 3.10 that there is none righteous, no, not one. Just doing better cannot save us. Our problem runs much deeper than what we do, much deeper than our actions. But brothers and sisters, thanks be to God, because he sent his son, the pure and spotless one, the one who knew no sin. He sent him to stand in our place and to take upon himself our sin, our guilt, our shame, our death. He sent him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. We might have eternal life. Now the story of the Bible is a story of divine rescue. It's one of God choosing a people for himself for their good and his glory. It's a, a drama of a loving and faithful God winning back for himself a pure bride for her one husband. Now, if you have kids, you probably have read or looked at the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in this, uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones describes the Bible this way. She says, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win, win back his lost treasure. 
It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. That's what the Bible is all about. Now you might be wondering, what, is, like, what does all this have to do with the seventh commandment? Not to commit adultery. And if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery already in your heart. What is, bring these two things together. Well, I think for us, Grace Church, we are in a far better place to, to understand God's call to walk in purity, to pursue holiness. When we understand God's work in the world through this lens of what he is doing. Because it highlights why adultery and impurity are so wrong. It highlights the purpose of marriage. It highlights why God's steadfast love and redeeming grace is so remarkable. Because I think in our, in our Christian culture, we can often see marriage functionally. I don't think we would necessarily say this, but functionally we see it as something of an end. In a sense, we try to redeem the follow-your-heart gospel by saying that, that really completeness can be found in marriage. So if you're not married, you need to be married. And if you are married, then your spouse should give you everything that you want and need. And if they don't, there's some problem there. But God never designed marriage as an end. He designed it as a picture of a far more profound relationship. And that relationship is the one between God and his people. Now we often hear this described in Ephesians 5. Paul uses this analogy in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. And he talks about how Christ the head of the church. And he gave himself up for her. And this is a marriage is just a picture of this. But we don't just see this in Ephesians 5. We see this all throughout the pages of Scripture. We see this picture of marriage used to portray this relationship. So in the Old Testament, this is often seen as Israel is shown to be an unfaithful wife. And there are explicit words that I'm not going to use here that are used again and again to show how Israel is this unfaithful wife. God was always very clear. He called his people, he chose his people, he redeemed and delivered his people so that they might be devoted to him. Wholeheartedly devoted to him. To him and him alone. The Ten Commandments starts with that. You shall have no other gods before me. So just as a bride is to be devoted to her husband, all of the laws that God gave to his people are meant to set them apart. To consecrate them as a people that are completely devoted to him. So in Numbers 15, this is just one example. Numbers 15, 38 through 40, we read this instruction. The Lord says to Moses, Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And this is why. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. So put this tassel on your garment so that you remember all my commands and remember them and do them. And then he says this, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. God is saying that it, it's in following after your own heart and your own eyes that's going to lead you away from my ways. That's going to lead you into unfaithfulness, into what the Bible would talk about as spiritual adultery. And this is what we see play out again and again and again in the Old Testament. There's this pattern of ongoing and persistent unfaithfulness 
within the people God has covenanted with. Their, their problems, they, they face problems outside of them, but their problems aren't primarily outside of them. Their problems are in their heart and in their wayward desires. What God calls his people to is an unwavering and devoted faithfulness. And the human relationship that this is to be exemplified in is that of marriage. But just as we might wish to hold on to the benefit of marriage while casting lustful looks at others, so we might also wish to have the benefits of redemption while we long for the world to love us. This is adultery. So just as we are to be faithful to God, so we are to be faithful in our marriages. We must guard our actions. We must guard our hearts and our eyes because marriage is this small stage that puts on display Christ's love for his church. Marriage is precious to God because it points to this this far greater reality, the love of Christ for his church and the church's devotion to him and him alone. And so we read in Hebrews 13.4, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And that's exactly what we see Jesus emphasizing here in Matthew 5. He's not calling for for literal self-mutilation when he tells us to cut off our hand or pull out our eye. But he is showing that the judgment on sin is so great that we must not take sin lightly. We must be willing to deal drastically with sin when we see it. The world in which we live treats sin, especially sins related to living your truth, to following your heart, treats these sins so lightly. When there is clear wrong, it's often just treated as an illness to be treated, not something to be repented of. But brothers and sisters, repent we must when we see sin. Sin is something to be hated, to be left behind, because its consequences are so great. Jesus is saying that we should be willing to give up that which is most important that which is most precious, even our right eye or hand, if that thing is what is leading us to sin. And we, when we recognize sin for what it is, when we recognize its seriousness, its subtlety, its effects, when we see our tendency to sin, then we must be devoted to walking in God's ways and to fighting our sin. As John Owen famously, famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is what Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, he calls us to do. So how do we do this? What does it look like for us to take our sin seriously? I'm going to make just two simple points. First is going to be don't linger. And second is going to be look to Jesus. So don't linger in the world. Don't linger around your sin. You're likely familiar with the story of Lot and his family in the city of Sodom. Sodom was this evil, wicked city full of wicked people, great sinners against the Lord. And in Genesis 19, we read how two angels come to this city to destroy it. After staying with Lot overnight, as day breaks, it was an eventful night. They stay with him overnight. As day breaks, the angels urge Lot and they say, Up, take your wife and your two daughters, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. The next words that scripture records are these. But he lingered. Lot, that night before, that eventful night before, he just experienced this harrowing evening where his guests were threatened. Then his own life was threatened. 
And he's been told that the place where he lives is going to be destroyed that very next day. But he lingers. He's slow to move. He delays. He hangs around just a little while longer. Now, God doesn't tell us what Lot did in his lingering. Just that he lingered. That's all God wants us to know. He wants us to see the absurdity of this moment. At the moment when Lot Lot is brought face to face with God's wrath, Lot lingers. When the, the full fury of wrath against sin is about to be put on display, Lot lingers. When there's no doubt about the calamity that comes from rejecting God, Lot lingers. What was he thinking? Sure, it's his home and all, but you're about to be swept away. And in that moment of imminent destruction, Lot delays. It's as if in his heart he's convinced that there's something more for him in wicked Sodom than there is in following God's call. When danger is coming to his door, coming to his very door, Lot wants to hang around just a little while longer. It's insane. Now bringing this to today, just as Lot lingered in Sodom, do you linger around temptation to sin? Do you hang around evil? Do you delay in fleeing from evil? Do you mindlessly scroll through social media or visit that news site or turn on the TV in order to linger where you know you shouldn't? In these moments of delay in fleeing temptation, think of Lot and the insanity of his lingering. Let it be a warning to you. Just like Lot, you know the end of this path and you know where you must go. So don't linger. And instead of lingering, delight. Delight in the only one who can bring us true happiness. The only one in whom we find true blessedness. That's what we all desire, in a sense. That's what follow your heart is all about. It's about happiness. But there's only one place where we can find satisfaction. And that is in God. Only God brings satisfaction. Only God can truly and eternally soothe every psychological distress we might face. Only God can bring true joy, full to the brim. Only God can give us peace and lasting peace. Only God can satisfy us because only God actually meets the needs of our souls. If God is the great good, and He is, He is the fountain of joy, the path to full and the blessed life, then see what a perversion sin is. Sin substitutes the one source of true and everlasting joy, God, and puts in its place our own self. That's what sin does. We exchange God for ourselves, for our own desires, for pursuing our own comfort. And we believe that this becomes the path to happiness. But it's not the path to happiness, it's the path to destruction. One man wrote that sin says this, sin says, there is not enough good in God to satisfy the soul. Sin says, there is not enough good in God. He who is the blessed, glorious, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, good, and fountain of all good, there's not enough good in him to satisfy the soul. That's what sin declares. Our sin looks to cash in on that which is cheap, that which is fleeting, and says that this is the path to happiness. Our flesh, the world, and the devil, they're all eager for us to linger around our sin, 
They're eager for us to believe that happiness is found in following your heart. But these are lies, and Satan is the very father of lies. I've shared a quote from John Owen before, and I think it's one we need to be reminded of again. This is the nature of our sin. Owen writes this. He says, sin aims always at the utmost. Always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. So sin always wants to go to the extreme. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. Sin is like the grave that is never satisfied. Brothers and sisters, sin is not a thing to be trifled with. It's not a thing to be lingered around or played with. It is to be fought. So don't linger around temptation to sin. Be willing to deal drastically with your sin. And that's Jesus' point. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now, if you are feeling conviction and the need to take steps, involve those around you with what steps to take. Ask your spouse or talk to Larry or I or appropriately engage those in your small group and get input on what it might look like for you to take drastic steps to kill your sin. But don't linger. Don't linger. Now, instead of lingering, look to Jesus. When we consider the seriousness of our sin, we must consider what it meant for Jesus. We need to see all things through the, the eyes of the Son of God. It is sin that caused Jesus to sweat drops of blood in the garden. It was sin that brought Jesus to experience agony and suffering on his way to the cross. It was sin that caused him to die on that cross. So look to him who hangs there in agony and blood, bearing the weight of our sin, drinking the cup of the wrath of God as he is forsaken by his Father. Look to him and remember, this is all because of sin. Let this terrible picture of the effect of sin direct your way to holiness, because he suffered that we might be free. He died that we might have eternal life. Look to Jesus and then take comfort in the fact that he didn't stay dead. Sin didn't have the final word. But he rose again. Behold him there, the risen lamb, the perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable land, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ, my Savior and my God. And because of what he has done, we can take comfort in the fact of eternity and life with him forevermore. One, one 17th century Puritan, he writes that God will shortly put a blessed end to all our troubles with sin, to all our cares and watchings. We but have to walk with them for a little while, just a little while longer. Flavel goes on, John Flavel. He says, the time is coming when your heart shall be as you would have it. When you shall be discharged of all these cares, fears, and sorrows. And never cry out, oh, my heart, my proud, my vain, my earthly heart anymore. You will there be delightfully entertained and exercised upon th that supreme goodness and infinite excellency of God. 
These corruptions you see today, you shall see them no more forever. So brothers and sisters, our response to this word must be to to look to the one who has made an end of all our sin. And as we look to him, let us be wholeheartedly devoted to him. As we pursue holiness, as we walk in his ways, as we take delight in him and him alone, and delight in no other. And may God give us grace to do that as we await his second coming. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word that speaks to us. Thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus, he who indeed has made an end of all our sin. Lord, because of what you have done, may our lives be ones that honor you in all we do. May we walk in obedience. Lord, would you guard our hearts? Would you guard our eyes? And may we walk in purity. Lord, may marriage be honored in this church. May it continue to be honored in this church as we uh, as men lay down their lives for their wives, as wives joyfully and humbly and graciously follow their husbands. Lord, may we be a city on a hill that brings you much glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.